Good evening, and welcome to Intermittent Signal from David A. Westbrook. That's me. It always seems to be evening when I do this sort of thing, even when I'm recording in the morning. Maybe it is the intimacy of the mic, the collection of screens, the hope the dogs and phone and other things are quiet enough. I have no idea how somebody does a radio drive-time morning show. Perky. Whatever. Anyway, good evening, and welcome. Tonight's episode is called After Hours at the Pandemia Lodge, a premature retrospective with recipes. This is part one. That means there is a part two. The music has been composed, performed, and produced by Vincent Parlato. It's spring break again. Here in the high country of Colorado, the pandemic is coming up on two years. It seems to be over, as a crisis anyway. I just threw away a bunch of masks. They are all over the house, the cars, and all my pockets. Gross. I wore the cheap cloth ones anyway, which may not have helped much. So I read, but viral load must help. Since I'm a vampire and immortal, I was mostly wearing the mask to be polite, and of course as a sign of political allegiance. How the hell did we get here? I know people who wouldn't take the mask off, even now, lest they be thought Trumpers. No doubt we'll have another spike and so forth, but for now, maybe, we have turned a corner. The pandemic no longer seems to define our days. We have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, inflation, and even March Madness, live, to occupy our front brains. So perhaps it's time to think a bit about the era just past. Way back in the late winter of 2020, we had heard of COVID, but we were reading the news from the West Coast, mostly minding our own business, skiing, and so forth. In March, spring break, I went skiing with our youngest. In Selman County, on the other side of the Continental Divide, at Hoosier Pass, there are lots of international travelers. Of course there was an outbreak. We talked about specific outbreaks at the beginning of the pandemic, before the disease was everywhere. And so I was exposed, in theory. Not that I was sick. I wasn't. But, evidently, people could get and transmit COVID asymptomatically. That was the tricky part. Or maybe not. Or not easily. But that was a worry, then. Since nobody had tests, much less vaccines, and I have vulnerable people in my family, the only way to make sure I was clean was to go long stretches without exposure or sickness. In theory, if I needed to show up at a hospital after a long drive alone, I could say I hadn't seen anybody in over two weeks. That was the idea. So that's how I found myself quarantined on the forested slopes of Mount Silverheels with big dogs for much of the next year. My house sits on 10 acres at 10,500 feet, roughly twice the altitude of Denver, the mid-station of Breckenridge, if that's familiar. It backs the National Forest, big views and big wildlife. I have a buddy, a local legend mountain man, in his mid-80s, but unless you are really fit, he will drop you hiking at altitude. I'm going to use pseudonyms here, so let's call him Crack. He spends half his time in Spain, has friends old enough to remember the Civil War. Craig was maroon like me, his wife Grace, back in Spain. Craig loves my dogs, Michael and Tessa. Dogs, by the way, don't get pseudonyms. Michael and Tessa are both Pyrenees mixes, roughly a lean hundred pounds. Tessa is half Brittany Spaniel, soft and doe-like, and loves water. Michael is mixed with Belgian and German shepherds and deeply needs attention. The big dogs have adopted Craig, and when she is back from Spain, Gracie, his wife, and indeed guard him and their house when we are there, which has raised issues with other less favored neighbors. Inside the circle, outside the circle. So, Craig and I hung out, cut wood to heat my house, walked. Along with another neighbor, we built some stairs for the deck and a fence in an effort to keep the dogs from chasing moose and other shenanigans. Sometimes I cook. 
I drank a lot, or I did anyway. I got more serious about photography and especially started experimenting with the photo essay, which seems to stand apart from and in complex relationship to the essay, the poem, and the painting. But mostly it was a good time to write, which became a joke. Quarantine is like finishing a manuscript. I finished two manuscripts. Please buy the books. Just kidding. Who cares? Politics was poisonous, you might recall. But away in the mountains, one could, with difficulty, put away the phone, close the laptop, and go on a walk. That was my 2020. In 2021, we were always, almost, getting back to normal. Or some new normal. Or something. Masks on, off, in various circumstances. Finally, a vaccine. Then variants. And then no tests. Nobody knew if they had it, if they were contagious, and, and, and. For reasons unclear, people stopped washing groceries. Also stop wearing gloves. Follow the science as it wanders around, I say. Teaching by Zoom, then in person, but masked, then it was also tiresome. As we have slowly started to emerge, I've started thinking about the progression of the pandemic as a psychological matter and the long-term costs, for me at least, maybe for a lot of people around here, maybe for a lot of people other places. In between book manuscripts, I wrote essays, some of which I'll read tonight, Mostly as a way of capturing the mood, responding to the moment, but the moment not so much where I was, but in this national, notional space, capturing increasingly desperate thoughts, mine anyway. What follows is a selection of those essays. If you want to read them, most of these and more are posted here and yon. I still have a Medium account, though it's less cool than it used to be. Anyway, I'm easy to find, as the song says. My mood changed over time as the pandemic ground on, the death toll mounted, more mistakes were made politics went from bad to worse. All that said, it bears remembering that the pandemic started out as a kind of what, as a kid growing up in the South, we celebrated as a snow day, albeit with casualties, or if so, hopefully elsewhere. At least that was the situation for a certain class of folks, the email class, if you will. We stayed home, caught up with friends and family, read something we'd been meaning to. And a lot of people turned to cooking, especially baking, sourdough. And it felt kind of a little awkward. The nation was losing people. People were being separated. But if you weren't one of those folks, it was kind of good in a weird way. I think a lot of people thought, maybe all along I should have been paying more attention to friends and family. Sometimes reading a real book. Sometimes doing something with my hands, like baking. Hasn't the pandemic given us a glimpse of a better modern, to put it rather starkly? Spoiler alert. Cooking, it will emerge, is some kind of exemplary activity here. I cook a lot, so the cooking part wasn't new, but I was marooned at over 10,000 feet, writing. Actually, none of, none of this was all that different, except I got a public health story to tell. And sometimes I write about food, mostly because it is easy to write, and I probably flatter myself a bit. Sue me. I keep wondering if I'm going to write a kind of not-quite cookbook. I have friends who make endless jokes about Burt's Bistro. My brother, a serious food and wine guy, has it right. Cookbooks are for reading in bed, for ideas, and, I would add, for the charms of contemplation. Assuming you know how to cook, you don't read while you are actually cooking. And actually, I think cooking, well, let's see what emerges. But suppose you do not know how to cook. The usual answer is, follow the directions. But, I think, this makes it harder to think like a cook, to understand what you're trying to achieve under the circumstances. 
Even saying this, however, introduces fundamental religious differences between grillers like me and baker's chocolatiers. Grillers are all about emergence. Let's see how this turns out. How bad can it be? Unfolding. Bakers require, and revel in, precision, execution, a kind of accountability. But I digress. Anyway, it's some sort of interim stance, and, like many others, I found myself responding to the pandemic in terms of food, as in the below. So, let's start with an early, cheerful essay, written mostly for fun and colleagues. Given the toll the pandemic would eventually take, the lives lost and the people hurt, I kind of cringe. But none other than Bono said that not only did he cringe at his own songs, cringing was probably where one should be, artistically speaking. A bit naked and exposed, I guess. As an aside, I remember and rather regret not going to hear U2 when I was in college in their early days because it was all fandom, like teeny boppers and Elvis, I've read. That bears further thought. Anyway, I'll cringe a little. I'll probably hate what I'm saying here. At least I can attest, on an amateur level, however, that the cooking advice is solid. So here we go. Lightness in isolation. Making a souffle during a plague. Dear friends, I'm quick to admit that souffle is an intimidating word. There are good reasons why. People who know what they are doing can do amazing things. But what about the rest of us? Here's a souffle story. Quite a few years back, I met an old friend. Let's call him Claude. He would like that. At Le Perigord, at the time perhaps the most classic French restaurant in New York City, an Upper East Side operation repeatedly described as a dowager. In fact, perhaps the most classic French place I've been anywhere, even though I've spent time in France and have lived in Belgium. The only competitor for crown of most classic French was also in New York City, the relatively recent and widely held Le Cucou, where Claude and I also ate, along with my good friend Levy. Le Perigord was a place where Nouvelle Cuisine meant, well, nothing much. Maybe tomorrow's market order. I wasn't young even then, and Claude is a few years older than I am. We were the youngest people in the place. A Rolls was parked in front of the door that weekday. When I ordered an appetizer, oysters and champagne, long before I had decided on my meal, maybe it was duck, I also ordered the souffle for dessert. Duh, whatever. But the staff had to pay attention to the souffle. It's been years, but strawberry, I believe, though I think the house special was Grand Marnier. In due course, it was fantastic. While I'm hazy on the flavor, I remember watching it collapse as it was served, and a syrup poured over. I mean, fantastic. Chapeau. Years later, wasting time and mildly curious, and slightly more engaged than Walter Benjamin's flaneur, I walked through the neighborhood and happed upon the restaurant. Le Perigord had closed, after a run of half a century, but the space hadn't been rebadged. The old sign was there. It was sad. And now, from lockdown, I worry about New York City as a way of living. Today, right now, I have too many ripe bananas, and a foodie friend and her husband loaded up the teardrop and headed across the country to Maine. Nobody on the highway, everyone hunkered down. Weird. She's left me with eggs, no doubt from hens with names. Meanwhile, I already had rather more pedestrian eggs. So, in general and for present purposes, by souffle I mean four things. Eggs, plus dairy, plus something else, plus flavorings and spices, mixed and baked. It's not complicated, even if the variations are endless and the great ones are, well, great. But if we lower our sights a bit, I, and any of you, can do this. The first part, egg, is the motor. 
it's pretty constant. Likewise with the second stage, dairy, sort of the transmission, usually cream, sometimes some butter or milk, whatever. It keeps the dish from being too eggy. The third stage, something else, gives the souffle its distinctive flavor and its character. If it is banana or strawberry or broccoli or a bit of lobster, you get a very different souffle. And broccoli or banana is going to inform the fourth part, the choice of spices and flavorings to enhance the dish. So that's the strategy. What about tactics? Again, this is pretty simple. The key is to beat stuff up so it has air in it. In my mountain house, I don't have much, but I do have a kind of fancy stick mixer. I think my kids gave it to me. But you could beat stuff up with any number of implements, including a fork or a whisk and some sweat equity. Just beat stuff up so it has air in it. That allows the egg to do its weird magic, both glue together and float up. Okay, so here's what I did the other night, and you can do a similar situated or differently in accordance with your circumstances. One, I beat four or five eggs. Two, I have a bunch of very ripe bananas, in fact, the inspiration for this project. I beat them to a pulp or puree. I throw in some organic sweetened half and half I would never buy. My buddy Craig gave it to me by mistake when I asked him to pick up some cream in town. Whatever. So we have fruit, sugar, and dairy, and air. Three, blend and add spices. What you're trying to get here is a mix of stuff that is yummy, but not so diffuse that the egg cannot bind it and tie it into a structure that can be baked. I added Madagascar vanilla and some cinnamon. Other options, nutmeg, allspice, almond, lemon zest, raisins, rum, but go easy with the rum because we want the egg to bind. You can also pour rum over finished product if you desired, or you could get fancy and make a rum syrup. Four, bake at 350 or whatever, this is at altitude, until it's obviously done. It's good but not necessary to have a souffle bowl. Straight sides, usually fluted on the outside. I'm not entirely sure why, but I assume something to do with heat distribution. The straight sides give you that cool rise. I inherited a few, and they work well. But maybe you don't possess such gear. Anything you can stick in an oven will do. Just make sure the vessel is big enough. You want souffles to rise, but they also want to rise. So you want to make sure your vessel is much bigger than the wet mix with which you start. The actual cooking is strangely easy. Just let the damn thing rise. And when it looks like it is set, take it out. Well, pay attention, whatever you may be drinking. Wait and watch, as I used to say to my youngest, as we lay on a slate patio, hoping for flocks of birds, mostly crows. Five. Unlikely under pandemic conditions, but you might want to serve with a syrupy sauce. So perhaps you boil that last overripe banana with pineapple or maybe grapefruit and a bit of rum or something orangey, a chocolate. I'm thinking out loud. Just FYI, it came out beautifully. Awesome. I had dessert first. But lest you get too proud of yourself too fast. The souffle cannot be finally judged out of the oven when it is its best combination of air and flavor. This, incidentally, is what made the true Krispy Kreme donut hot off the line, arguably the best baked confection ever. It's not eaten so much as inhaled, like cognac, and it occurs to me as I'm talking, maybe also like cocaine from what I've heard, which I can say without righteousness is within my circles, but not in my wheelhouse. But again, I digress. A good champagne, or any other sparkler, should be good wine not only when in the prime of life, upon opening, but the next morning, discovered as a half bottle somebody forgot. The sparkler should decompress, as it were, in the decent white wine, or it could be rosé. So it is with a souffle. We should expect the divine dessert to become a satisfying breakfast. Eggs, right? See? Cheerful. 
But as the months went by, the mood darkened. Miasma, ennui, and hope. Food, drink, and music included. South Park, Colorado, August 23rd, 2020. It's the fag end of a summer that needs finishing lest we all go mad. The West is on fire. Hundreds, maybe thousands of fires burning from just past Vail all the way across Utah and Nevada to California, down in New Mexico and Arizona and up north too. Across maybe a million square miles, give or take the area of an eastern state, the smoke and dust commingle in the dry air and merciless sunlight, producing a haze that does not usually smell like smoke. Driving across South Park last week before sunset, the rangeland seemed immersed in clover honey, the cattle languid in a thin golden liquid, a light I didn't think I could capture, and the big dogs and I needed watering, so we pressed on. Now back in the high country on cloudless days, and they are almost all cloudless, I can barely make out the shape of the peaks that surround me. One of the reasons to be here in the summer is to see the mountains, with their patches of snow glistening in the sun against the blue sky, especially in the morning after the afternoon storms bring lightning, hail, and blessed rain. Nothing glistens now, and storms are rare. We have had no water, little serious precipitation for many months. February had heavy snow, but the snow from March into May simply failed, though there was a bad late storm in June, killing much. The hummingbird survived, I know not how. But these days, the sun is blue at the azimuth, mostly, and the horizon is white. I've never seen this much dust on the aspens and the grass thereunder, through which a dimly glowing coyote sauntered yesterday morning. My eyes burn, just a little, but constantly, waiting. The air is officially unhealthy most days, sometimes softened to, quote, unhealthy for sensitive groups, close quote. Just more bad news on the phone, an excuse not to train. It's not really news, actually. Pseudo-facts triangulated from readily available data according to some algorithm. Nobody measures anything out here, so we have to be satisfied with digital rumors. In this case, true, say my eyes. For centuries, the air of cities was thought to be unhealthy, especially in summer, and people fled to their villas in the countryside. But this subalpine forest provides no real escape from the miasma. At least it is not too hot. Denver, off to the east and a mile lower, is even more unhealthy right now, the ozone-rich smog settling into the hollow in which the city rests, bad air trapped up against the front range, and high temperatures near 100 degrees Fahrenheit. One inescapably thinks of global warming, the drought that seems to have been building for a few decades now, the dissolution of the Anasazi, and perhaps it could happen again. We are far removed from our food sources. Supply chains are fragile, as COVID-19 has taught us. The pandemic continues. More bad air with no end planned, or not believably so. Times do pass, so presumably these strange days too will pass, having changed things somehow, no doubt about that, but not much knowledge either. I worry that the police powers of the state, and especially employers, will be extended, with people required to monitor themselves, even while loudly demanding justice, a word again used as a blade, as it has been since Robespierre, at least. The result, one must worry on the basis of much history, is likely to be the spiritual and even material immiseration of the lower and middle classes, but wrapped in piety. For the relatively privileged in the academy and elsewhere, life is likely to become more irksome, as Auden had it. New Soviet man must lie a lot and dreams of escape while managing the proles. 
Given my German heritage, state power and the temptation of intellectuals to be silent is a personal concern. But while I feel some obligation to respond, I'm not sure how and not sure I have the energy. All it takes is for good men to be silent, I grew up with. But I'm not sure I'm willing to make the enemies and bear the cost of doing so. I'm getting old, soft. Not long ago, it was easy to ridicule those in Texas and such places who were unwilling to take common sense measures to flatten the curve. And it still is. But as the pandemic grinds on and surveillance becomes further normalized and our own phones are used to consolidate institutional power, as the divides deepen, I wonder about the point at which each of us reaches our own Texas, the point of defiance, maybe even explosion, sliding. I fear my own Texas may be close, notwithstanding the fact that I also worry about my moral cowardice, that I'll just watch the body politic rot, the fish begin to stink. No man with a family, or who needs health care and retirement funding, is free. But that is just the sort of thing a coward would say, even as his own situation deteriorated around him. This is all too overheated. Surely must be. Much of my anxiety and occasional flashes of rage are also due to the pandemic, which has infected politics and minds too. Yet every day I learn more about East Germany, and I have come to understand how much more deeply how McCarthy happened here. The conditions of our political life, like our supply chains, are more fragile than we have long unconsciously presumed. Today, by way of example, we wonder how the Postal Service, to say nothing of more modern forms of communication, will function in the upcoming election. We talk incessantly about, quote, conversations, close quote, that we have no intention of holding. Show trials, maybe. What can be said in a, quote, society's, close quote, so fractured as to make any outcome suspicious? Something, one must hope. Something good. Please. But that is not an argument or a prayer for relief. There is more bad news in our pockets. The news is almost always bad. That is the business model. And therefore we wallow in a digital ocean of sadness, injustice, stridency of one sort or another. We now spend so much time thinking bad thoughts as our very young son would choke out upon waking from a nightmare, shaken as were his parents. Still am come to rethink that suppressed thought. There is little more heartrending than the nightmare of a small child. For all our comforts, our unhappiness is almost boundless, global, which is, of course, progress. Innovation, as my university robotically intones, never having seriously thought about technology, but hoping for grant money or licensing fees. Though the comforts are in question, the incessant awareness of marketable unhappiness that informs the contemporary consciousness is not. Miasma has moved from weather to a psychological condition of digital modernity, a life lived in bad thoughts. Breathe deep, it will go easier. Sitting on a deck with friends, socially distant enough in the hazy sunlight, yet again discussing how much we do not know. When to travel? She's Spanish, and everybody has family elsewhere. I do too, and how long can you go without visiting your old people before it is too late? Will the plans for reopening schools hold? Each member of my family goes back to school now, in various states, as students or teachers, under different plans, different chances of success, and with different levels of risk in the environment and to their persons. When will I teach next? Under what circumstances? It has become difficult to talk about anything else, even though nobody knows anything, which everyone realizes, but says yet again. Making small talk, trying to be polite, my own words bore me so much that I want to scream. 
but that would be rude and would take so much energy. A small wildfire, if that phrase makes any sense, pops up a few miles away, this side of the range. Friends of my friends live there and provides a break from the ennui. They send a picture of the smoke and a rant about careless neighbors with a campfire. I picture old folks foolishly trying to have fun with the grandkids, but whatever. Several houses are evacuated in an abundance of caution, and the fire is quickly contained. The air is so bad that we never saw the smoke here. We are living in smoke. Still, if the forest over there could burn, perhaps it could here as well. In a normal year, we are too high and green for fire to be much of a concern, but maybe not this year. Worrisome. Work is getting done. The demiurge is a relentless bitch, but small tasks are daunting. Should those odd boards left over from building the stairs be cut for kindling or stored somewhere as a home for rodents, and the off chance I'll find a use for them sooner rather than later? If I want to cut them, I ought to get a sharp chain on the saw, as I've meant to do for months now, and I need much more wood for winter, if it ever comes, but chainsaws are really fiddly for all but the skillful. Perhaps it would be enough to do some laundry. Real tasks, like fixing an expensive and suddenly recalcitrant router, or engaging credit agencies to cope with yet another data breach, stretch out like the Sahara or the North Atlantic, implacable, trackless, hopeless. Maybe try tomorrow. So tired. But tired is not the right word. The big dogs and I haven't eaten today, and should. A week ago, I spatchcocked a chicken and grilled it with a bunch of Indian spices. It's not great. Too heavy on the turmeric, for starters. But the bird died, and I have to own that. So I've been eating off it for a while. Yesterday, I managed to debone what was left and throw the bones in some old sourdough in a pot of water, broth for the dogs if nothing else. It takes me almost an hour to get an idea and summon the will to start. Something summery, easy, satisfied. Kind of Russian-Mexican-Indian. So, chop some potatoes and onions and get them going in a deep saucepan. Toss in a couple of ladles of that broth. Red cabbage and zucchini. No oil. A light char and a cast iron skillet. Pacing, I see a dark red ball sliding behind the range, and I head outside to try to photograph sunset in a time of fires. The shot from the deck is off, so I hustle to a clearing owned by my nearest neighbor. That picture isn't great either, but the sun is almost gone now, and I hurry to get back before things go from char to burn, dogs scrambling through the tall grass. Chicken salad. Chop small. Chicken, celery, good pickles, and some of the juice. Green onion, and a lot of fresh cilantro. Add decent mayonnaise, squeeze a lemon, and blend. I was going to spice, but there's enough spice here already. Always taste. Hard to remember when you pretty much know what you're doing. Chicken is finally good. Really good. A few drops of water in a lid for the cabbage and zucchini to make sure cooked but not overcooked. I want a little crunch. And then into a glass bowl. Quick quasi-pickle with champagne vinegar, dill, and kosher salt, setting off the char. Success. Note. Do not pickle in your skillet and ruin the seasoning of your cast iron. Potatoes and onions are done. Toss with salsa, cover with inexpensive mixed cheese, transfer to some sort of heat-proof pan, and pop it into a toaster oven until the cheese is bubbly. Now, a civilized man would have a rosé or maybe a very light red wine with this. Garnacha, perhaps. I have neither, so I decide to postpone dinner while the potatoes finish and make a dark and stormy, the English rose. I think about Bermuda, wedding, and writing, and a sort of shabby end of empire feel. 
Not just the British Empire, but the longest runway except JFK. At least that's what the locals say is a point of pride, built by the Americans to win wars and to project force thereafter. From over 10,000 feet in the heart of the continent during a pandemic, Bermuda is so far away, out there in the Sargasso Sea, current wrapped in the middle of the Atlantic. I think jumbled thoughts of flowers, wife and children, an extended family, swimming with colorful fish, the tempest, Wahoo had borrowed by Germans, and I hope. Dark and stormy is among the simplest of drinks, which means there are many arguments over how it should be made. Here's what I do, which is wrong, as often. English straight-sided pint glass. A fair amount of ice. Filled halfway up, sometimes more, sometimes less. Depends on the evening and who is drinking, with dark rum. Top with ginger beer. The glass is narrower at the bottom, and more of the ice is there, and you don't fill all the way to the top. So I figured it is about three parts to five, spirit to mixer, give or take. One might, of course, measure, but that would reduce the drama. Anyway, it's a big stiff drink, suitable for contemplating chaos at sundown. And isn't that, along with really good food, the heart of drinking? I garnish with a squeeze of lemon in the peel. Not proper, but tasty. Why is it called dark and stormy, you ask? Traditionally, one uses a smaller glass and just one or two cubes of ice. Pour in ginger beer. Float the rum on top, maybe using the back of a spoon. Spirits are generally lighter than mixers, so the drink has a dark layer topside, the rum, and a stormy layer on bottom, the ginger beer with its bubbles. Pretty! Drinking it that way, the first sips are really strong, nearly pure rum with some ginger coming through, but the drink weakens as you work your way down, which is not always a bad idea. You have a little time, drinking a soft drink towards the end, to feel the rum hit before you decide to order another. Govern yourself accordingly. But lots of people mix the drink after the first few sips, and they are on their own. Having seen the namesake layers before, and I've been on my own in the wasteland for far, far too long, I put the rum in first to make a more consistent drink. The rum floats up through the ginger, mixing it, so each sip tastes of both rum and ginger. I wonder if the inventor of the drink, a genius long ago lost in bar rooms or maybe on decks, wanted to make a, quote, stormy drink because of the tempest. Bermuda was first settled by shipwreck and brilliant seamanship. In many places, the reef is so far from shore that there is little sign of danger until it is too late. The island was isolated hundreds of miles from land, and nobody reached it until the Europeans with their fancy ships at the beginning of the modern era. The Europeans didn't conquer it, like the rest of what is now called the Americas, for the simple reason that there were no natives to be conquered. For a long moment, Bermuda represented the rediscovery of the garden, and that may be what captivated Shakespeare. It is thought that the discovery of Bermuda was Shakespeare's inspiration for the Tempest, an island of beautiful water, caves, and magic, nowhere, uninhabited except maybe by fairies, and so fundamental. But that was a moment. Africans were brought in shortly thereafter as slaves to make and then operate a sugar economy that kind of sort of worked, hence rum, but the cane just did better further south. The island remains largely black, except the money managers, the Russian oligarchs, the ocean sailing crowd, bill fishing boats with sunning, sweeping gunnels, strong enough to run across the open ocean from Annapolis, Charleston, or even Miami, and fast enough to run drugs. Why did I waste my life on a bankrupt academy? In a simple drink, ingredients are especially key. 
First, traditionally, the rum should be Gosling's Black Seal, made in Bermuda since 1808, funky and dark. On my return to the high country, I discovered that a friend had left a bottle on my counter. It is good to have friends, lots of folks with keys to this house. One of the many good things that are not news. I think other dark rums would work, but I've not been forced to test this proposition. Sometimes one should respect tradition. Second, ginger beer, not ginger ale, which is too sweet. There can be no compromise on this point. To be really proper, Barrett's from Bermuda since 1878, though Gosling's also makes a fine ginger beer. I'm flexible, however, with regard to brand. Ginger beer seems to be well-made pretty much wherever Her Majesty has exercised dominion, and I've had good stuff from South Africa, Jamaica, and the United States, as well as Bermuda, which remains a British territory. Tonight, I'm using an Australian ginger beer that is available in town, rather than honorific. Finally, the garnish. Purists insist that there should be no garnish. Many people garnish with lime, and lime is very good. I found out today, however, that lemon is very good too, which is unsurprising when you think about it. Both rum and ginger are often paired with lemon, especially in cakes. Gosling's is excellent for baking. Dinner is also excellent. Nibbled standing while listening to music and thinking, writing this and other things. The eyes still hurt, and there is no firm promise of rain in the forecast. Just occasional thunderstorms is likely to be dry and start fires as to prevent or put them out with real rain. Nonetheless, I do have hopes, albeit lately mostly as a matter of theological familial commitment, existential pride rather than spontaneous mood, the grace of strength, which is no easy grace. And tonight, however, things look a little better. Not incidentally, after a decent meal and some good drinks, the miasma seems more manageable. We can cope until summer ends, and it will end, and the rains, this high snow, will come. The nation will heal itself, for the most part. The wounds are many, but not as deep as they often look on our screens. We will find ways to make our servitude, digital and otherwise, bearable. There will be things to love. A chance find strikes me as a good omen. It's a fine night to discover bad trick just out from Ray Wiley Hubbard and friends. Now in his late 70s, Ray is a legend of Texas music, that narrative guitar-driven fusion of blues, rock, and country that goes by many names, who never hit the big time, spending his life singing in the kind of bars and small venues where I spent much of my dissolute youth. This, despite being an original who wrote classics like Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother, and Screw You, We're From Texas, and other more obviously serious songs. One night, Ray came back unhappy from a substandard performance, and his wife Judy reminded him that everybody turns a bad trick now and then. That line became the kernel of the first song they ever wrote together, a back and forth of little home truths, at least home in Texas, destined to be rowdily sung along in bars and honky-tonks if we get to go back to such places, God willing. Chris Robinson, Ringo Starr, Joe Walsh and Don Wass wanted to play along, but the pandemic had just started. And so the song is performed together by people in the same room and others thousands of miles apart. This digitization thing ain't all bad, and neither is a year in which we are forced to slow down and think about what matters. Pandemics, like wars, provide opportunities for real virtue. A climbing buddy once told me that the Aztecs believed that hummingbirds were symbols of bravery, the spirits of fallen warriors, and the hummingbirds here are indomitable, spinning and whirling and hovering in the foul air. Courage. And for you, friends and colleagues, as we together head into yet another difficult season, 
fire is still burning in many senses. We might remember to forgive ourselves and others even more when the best that can be managed isn't all that great, isn't even good. Everybody turns a bad trick now and then. Indeed. Keep going so that sometimes it can be great. Will be. That's all I can do today, Debbie Hirsch. Bitch. So that ends part one of After Hours of the Pandemia Lodge on Intermittent Signal from David A. Westbrook. The music has been composed, performed, and produced by Vincent Parlato. For more pandemic fun, please listen to part two and tell your friends. It won't cost them anything but the time and the worries, like being a parent. Until next time, and I hope there is a next time, take care.